Just before we get started, just a brief content warning. This conversation with Jess Hill includes discussions of domestic violence and family court practices in Australia. This is all the President's Minutes and I'm your host, Blake Howard. In fact, I'm the producer of all the One Heat Minute productions. First and foremost, I just wanted to reach out with my empathy and solidarity for everyone in the United States of America, the African-American community who once again are being forced to riot to be heard in the face of overwhelming and brazen police brutality. When I conceived of this show, I thought that it would be a great landing zone for conversations about cinema, about journalism, about history and about politics and where those things intersect. The show will go on. However, just some of the episodes that you're going to hear in the coming run of episodes have occurred before any of the events over the last week have unfolded. I once again want to wish my empathy and solidarity from Australia to my American brothers and sisters and to my dear friends and wish them safety in their protest, in their peaceful protest. And this is not unique to the United States. And any Australian who is listening has to have the morality and the fortitude to acknowledge that this lucky country that I feel guilty for continually saying that I'm lucky that I live in is built on the blood of our own First Nations peoples and Indigenous Australians continue to suffer the same plight as African-American citizens in the United States. And whether it's by agenda or legitimate legal restrictions, Australian press continue to be suffocated. And on this show, we're going to talk about it. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. Let's get into the show. Okay, well, you keep going and go where you got to go, and that's fine with us. Um, okay. We got plenty of time here. Are you okay? I'm getting shot. I'm getting... Katie, Katie, are you okay? Rubber bullets, rubber bullets. It's okay. It's those pepper bullets. It's those pepper are they, bullets. They who are they aiming that at? Now you're shooting at the photographer. At us, like directly at us. Directly Why at are they us. doing that? They're shooting at our crew. I don't Do they know. not know that obviously they see the camera? Right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is, well, uh, the great thing about this show is that uh, as opposed to just film critical minds or people in the biz, um, uh, we have a great eclectic bunch of journalists and satirists and historians and, and whatnot that get to come onto the show. And I was reading the Australian Guardian a, a couple of weeks ago now, or maybe even a month ago now, and I read about a book called See What You Made Me Do from an Australian investigative journalist who just won the stellar award for women's writing. And in that interview about her stellar award-winning, now stellar award-winning investigative document was her describing the process as a meticulous dismantling of lazy old lies and an excavation of so many held beliefs and biases 
of domestic violence in Australia and the world. And that dismantling, that meticulous dismantling, particularly, I thought, well, this is a person who has been on the forefront of a story that basically no one wants to hear uh, and, and, and has then made the telling um, so compelling uh, as to win an award. And what a great person that would be to talk to about on this show, like talk about journalistic dismantling um, and, and what that's like to be doing it uh, and then to sort of at least have some kind of glory in the fact that um, people are responding to the book so well. So it's with my distinct pleasure to welcome Jess Hill to the show. Jess, thank you so much for being on All the President's Minutes. My pleasure, Blake. Thanks for having me. So now your book, See What You Made Me Do, you're like on currently on a bit of a promo trail with it, I guess, and, uh, and, and it's just one. How you've been writing this book since 2014, it's now 2020. What is it like after so long grinding to make this book happen? What is it like being in the trenches of a story like this that essentially consumes your whole life? And, and how, how do you get out of that? How do you, how do you come out the other side? Well, that's a good question and one that um, I'd like to ask someone else. Like, you know, how, how do I get out of it? Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm certainly out of the trenches. Um, it's like the difference between having a six-month-old and a three-year-old, you know, like you're still going through it, but you aren't, you know, you aren't deep in the shit anymore. Um, they, and, they can go to the toilet now, you know. That's they can, right. They can, the, they can feed themselves. <laughs> still uh, wipe the bottom, but, you know, it's like it's, it's you're out of the really labor intensive part. Um, and, and so I, you know, I think that for me, um, yeah, that I started writing at the end of 2014, wrote and reported for that, that whole year of 2015 and then got commissioned to write the book. The book was supposed to be just a quick wrap of the research, you know, that I'd already done six months or to do it. And then the deadline just kept on marching further and further out. But the, there's a big difference between taking on a book and, and knowing in advance that it's going to take years yes. to, um, as opposed to taking on a book that it's going to take six months and then it's going to maybe take 10 months and then maybe 16 months. And then <laughs> yeah. so you never get the, you never feel the freedom in it. You're always feeling guilty, always feeling late. Um, you know, it's always that you're not doing this quick enough. Why can't you get to the bottom of this? So in, an, in addition to the actual difficulty of the material was the feeling that one was always failing <laughs> because I hadn't met any of the number of deadlines that, um, that my publisher had agreed to. But I think that for the, in, in the actual sort of guts of what I was writing about, you know, it would change some chapters would be a lot easier than others um you know the children's chapter i which for which i interviewed several kids um between 8 and 18 but also grown adults who'd grown up with it as children um that was so difficult and so confronting and i was writing it when i was pretty heavily pregnant oh. i just happened to win a like a, a writer's retreat that i'd entered and forgotten about some months before <laughs> and i got i got an email at like 34 weeks pregnant saying you've just been awarded this retreat would you like to take it <laughs> and it was like a week in the dandenongs i'm from sydney um in this beautiful little house and i 
was looking at my belly going, well, I won't be able to take it any time in the next however many years <laughs> if I don't look now. If, 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 it's not, if, it's not, if it's not now, it's definitely not a solo trip, you know, about 34 Precisely. weeks. Yeah. Precisely, and I will be getting no writing done. Um, and so I thought, well, look, I've just got to go now, you know, and there was much consternation and my partner was convinced I was going to give birth in some, you know, part of the mountains and that he was not going to be there. And, um, and so I, I ended up going there, but, but being there for five or six days Mm. alone and just writing at any time of day or night and sleeping at most unusual hours meant I was able to get that chapter done before I gave birth. And that was really important uh, because I just, I couldn't have been in the lives of those children um, having just had a newborn baby. It just wasn't going to work. So there was so much like that. There was just, it was such an odyssey. I, I can't tell you, like, it's almost like the book at the end of it is, is a product of that, but the actual journey of writing it was such a thing in itself. You know, this is why we have movies like All the President's Men where the actual background of producing something, a, a long investigation can be more tumultuous than the investigation sort of betrays. Um, and that was certainly the case for me. It was an it was a incredibly disturbing, poignant, transcendent, burdensome project that utterly changed my life. You get to the end and at least the luxury of doing a project like this, like all the president's minutes looking at this film is that hindsight's beautiful when you get to condense three or four or like ongoing years of work into a reflective, punchy, you know, sort of docudrama. It's very nice. But when you're going through it literally and, and battling through, you know, beautiful things like being pregnant at the same time and having babies and all that sort of stuff, I, I, I think it's unimaginable, but it's extremely commendable. And I think, you know, I'm from Sydney too. Get, escaping to the Dandenongs to write um, and be there both sounds like a reprieve and sounds like a great accelerator, but it also sounds like... Uh, an isolation, you know, we're speaking of uh, our current <laughs> isolation now is like you're in ISO with those kids and, and they, and those, and those stories, which I, I again, I'll, I'll, there'll be links to it in the description of the podcast and whatever podcast app you're doing. And on our site, one when you want to check out the post of, of the actual, uh, of the actual episode. Um, so you can jump off and, and check that out for Jess, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really powerful and compelling thing. And, and now something also while we're in this crisis that um, seems to be rearing its head in, in a big, bad way. Mm, yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's been curious because I've been really tracking it around the world from, from what we can, you know, garner from, from police report statistics or from what frontline services are saying. And so, you know, we have statistics that vary from China, that there was a doubling or tripling in reports in some areas, especially where the lockdown was particularly severe. Yeah. Uh, and in the UK, there has been in the weeks since they locked down um, a more than doubling of the domestic homicide rate in, um, in various other places, uh, Singapore, Cyprus, you know, helpline calls are up by a third uh, here in Australia. What is interesting is that, we see frontline services say that they're, that then the need for their services has increased the um, but also the complexity of what they're dealing with has increased um, but then the police statistics are different some of them show an increase in reports in some areas others show a decrease they say across the board 
the rate is stable. In New South Wales, the domestic homicide rate is actually far lower than it was at this time last year. And there are multiple different reasons for that that I think we won't become clear until after this is over. Um, but that include, you know, a bit more of proactive action from police in terms of visiting high-risk perpetrators, enforcing orders, the number of breaches of intervention orders yes. um, have gone up, which doesn't mean that that perpetrators are breaching more often. It means that police are enforcing the breaches, which is a constant um, problem um, in that, you know, often perpetrators will breach an intervention order that says you can't be in contact or make threats of violence, etc., and they will you know, be sending threatening text messages or lurking about outside somebody's house and police just won't enforce the breach. Um, and so it, it makes those intervention orders sort of not worth the paper they're written on when, that, when you can't enforce them. So right now we're seeing a much better rate of enforcement. It's like the domestic violence sector, when the lockdown started, they sent, sent up the red flare and were like, this is a incredibly dangerous situation and everybody needs to be all hands on deck um, to really respond um, to any sign of a increase um, of greater danger etc and I feel like there has been a good response to that um, and even just the reasonably generous wage subsidies that have not gone to everyone but have gone to a, a, a part of the population who would otherwise be humiliated struggling you know that's that's the sort of stuff that feeds violence and feeds abuse in households and when you when you kind of offset that by having the government come in and providing it means that you are interrupting a lot of what i think would be the the, the worst kinds of violence or the, at least the worst kinds of physical violence so you know it's very hard to say i think obviously we're seeing that that in those households where the state is not sort of being called in and where no one is calling anyone for help it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that these conditions would increase the risk but we're not actually seeing thank god a, a, a rise in domestic homicides um, as far as i can note yeah I, one final thing just before we, we jump to much lighter topics uh of this movie i think one of the things that your book shook me up and maybe it's happened it's coincided since i read the article and and since i sort of preliminarily preliminarily reached out to you about coming onto the show is your book dispelled for me like a i think you put it best as sort of like a, a sort of dunderheaded like stupid you know uh thought in my head or like an, a presumption that domestic violence um domestic violence is it happens in like it's a you know being passed through a family like it's genetic defect or something like that like if you've been touched by it you're more likely to you know to touch others with it etc but i think what your book struck me with and now in conjunction with covid and it's you know so fascinating and insightful to hear you sort of unpack it for the, for the people listening to the show is that it's a whole like it is a myriad of factors um that are that are sort of like this that create an alchemy and that are like a recipe for disaster. So, you know, like exactly as you just outlined and you outline it so well in your book, it's like, you know, job, you know, job losses and, you know, the lack of socialization and, you know, it, different sort of levels of humiliation that are happening in the workplace that come home and, 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 and even the, you know, sort of safer workplaces, people bringing home, not being able to, 
react in an emotional way back home where they can in the privacy of their own home. But that's a dangerous thing. You know, it's a, it's a really fascinating thing. And I think that that's, you know, at least in, you know, we can, you know, probably say more safely and with more certainty in our own country, but at least uh, the dialogue around domestic violence and reaching out um, and and not being ashamed to, to, to ask for help. And at least the dialogue from the people in power in this country has been around, you know, what keeping watch of domestic violence and, and keeping it on people's radar and keeping it not a thing of shame, but a thing of awareness that we need to sort of support has been really, really good during this crisis in my mind as an outsider. Mm, and, you know, it's really, it's also around the immature expectations that, um, that are really drummed into a lot of boys and that go and that follow them into manhood about what a relationship should be, how they should feel in a relationship, what they should expect, yes. you know, that, and the, and what happens very early um, in boyhood where they're, uh, it's not so much just like, don't cry. It's not about not being able to cry. It's about almost training boys to feel allergic to vulnerability, to feel like, any sense of um, being seen to be out of control or being seen to, um, to not know what you're doing or, or just, you know, being vulnerable is, um, is very threatening. And so when there's, and there's not, there's no um, sort of stage, there's not, there's, there's no area of our life that is more prone to vulnerability than intimate relationships. You know, that's where our vulnerabilities are, um, are fleshed out and we are the best and worst parts of ourselves. That's where your and shield, that's where your shields are down, Jess. You know, that's, exactly. where, that's, that's <laughs> you know, required. You know, that's the thing is what's required of you yes. to have intimacy is vulnerability. And so it's like we have raised boys and men to be utterly unable to, to be in intimate relationship. And I'm not talking about obviously all boys and men, you know, Obviously, there are lots of boys and men out there who have resisted that 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 training or have become aware of how how those feelings move about in themselves and have confronted them and tried to work with them and overcome them. Any number of reactions are there, but the the dominant culture, you know, says to men that you need to be in control, and if you're not in control, then you will end up losing out. You won't get the girl because all the the women want want guys who are in control and, and, and autonomous and logical and unemotional. Um, and, and you won't get the money because, you know, the business world is all dog eat dog um, and kill or be killed. It's just like, it's, it's a deforming kind of influence. Um, and so it's any, it's no wonder that we see deformed behavior in the home. Um, and that, that doesn't even go into the individual circumstances of whether you've grown up in a traumatic household or whether you've been shamed as a child or whether you've been rejected, all those things obviously play into it as well. But it's, it just, you know, feminists have been saying for a really long time, look at the society that we've built, look at, you know, European patriarchy and what it drums into young boys. Are you that surprised that you see this level of violence occurring in the home? Yes. Yes. And um, it's, it's, it's actually in this very era of at least American cinema where you start to see the shift from this, uh, this mask, this facade of strong, silent type, uh, into mm. guys like Dustin Hoffman who ply his wares as an actor in a career as deeply vulnerable, flawed, emotionally all over the shop people. Um, and, uh, you, and that's a bit queer exactly and so you've got these really different portrayals of masculinity coming through in cinema and, and that's that 
you know, and, and eventually it comes back around in the eighties where you talk about it from a, you know, a purely like how it reflects in culture, like remasculinization. So, you know, Reagan comes back in power in the eighties, you know, post Nixon, you know, through Nixon, Watergate, you know, post JFK, you get this sort of vulnerability, this, you know, different queer characters, all that sort of stuff. And then you get to the eighties and it's like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and John claude Van Damme and all these chiseled bodies, like trying to get revenge for Vietnam. And it's like, Oh, we're just going back because the patriarch the patriarchal cycle means that we can't we have to be impervious we we can't allow our vulnerability in it yeah and that's what you know it's um there's a great book called backlash by susan faludi and it looks at how what we started to see through the the second wave of feminism through the 70s where women were you know divorcing their abusive husbands they were wanting their own careers and single motherhood was becoming um you know much more common and single mothers with careers which was like you know devil's born and and you start (laughs) to see especially in hollywood like you know um movies like fatal attraction where yes. the, the one of the, the lead protagonists, Glenn Close's character, who's stalking this man, it's like she's this single career woman who wants this, you know, to invade this man's family and displace the the humble wife who, you know, plot spoiler, but ends up killing her um, in the, you know, ultimate um, triumph of the patriarchal female. <laughs> and and it's amazing. <laughs> I really wanted to include this story in the book, but that that. That's that movie, Fatal Attraction, the original synopsis for that movie was about a man who cheats on his wife, who gets found out and has to basically like fess up to what he's done um, and, and has to be held accountable. It wasn't about some crazy female stalker, um, but it got, once it was in the hands of, I think it was Adrian Lyon, was the director um, once it was in Adrian Lyon's hands and you hear him talk about it and you even hear um, Michael Douglas talk about it, who was also in the film. Um, and they are reveling in taking down that independent, powerful female character. And even in. And they have to, but they have to make her a bunny boiler, right? Like they, they, they she can't just be a regular human person. She can't be a human person. She's got to be a witch. They have to make her insane. And, in cinemas across America, when um, that have you know, when Fatal Attraction was playing, you'd have audiences at the end when the when the wife was sort of coming to kill Glenn Close, and um, and they'd be saying, "Kill the bitch, kill the bitch!" like screaming at the screen, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's like that's the thing. That's the backlash. That's going like, nope, nope, nope. We've had enough of this. We've got to shut it down, and so we've got to demonize this woman. Um, and, and that really lasted in the culture until, well, until quite recently. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, like you said in the preface of your book, it's 2014 is the watershed year, um, for, for sort of new wave feminism and, and, and finally voices being heard. And it was this tsunami, uh, I think, mm-hmm. and then social media, like, harnessed to that full power and so since then it started to really you know in a variety of ways gain momentum and 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 push the dialogue and conversation and start to sort of shake those biases down to the very foundations and it's like uh, you know especially in other countries in oz there's still some hiccups which is why you know someone like you is so invaluable (laughs) in this dialogue um but in 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 other countries you've seen big people get 
you know, getting taken down. And, and I was speaking earlier to the great New York Times film critic Manola Dargis on this show, and our, our episode of All the President's Minutes was actually interrupted because the news broke that Harvey Weinstein was actually arrested, like that was convicted wow. of a crime. And so we had to end our episode prematurely because Manola, you know, working for the New York times um, was sort of called into action to that breaking story. So yeah, it's a, I think it's, wow. it's, it's now taking some time and momentum and people are being held accountable and all those sorts of things. And it's starting to starting to make an impact and people are starting well, to pause. Yeah, totally. And you know, it, it's, um, I, I, the, the, the me too movement had a really significant impact on the way that I wrote the book. I would not have, titled a chapter patriarchy and i probably wouldn't have investigated the um the nature of patriarchy and and its and its impacts on how we socialize and 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 everything of how we interact with the world had it not been for that movement because prior to me too um right up until then patriarchy was still seen as some radical femo word that was you know that that showed you up as a man hater. And I thought that if I really interrogate this term, I'm going to alienate a whole section of the readership that I really want to engage with. But by the time Me Too came along, um, you know, patriarchy was just like common parlance at dinner parties and water cooler conversations. And, And, you know, it's why I end the book at first quite, you know, I was a bit cautious and a bit concerned about how people might respond ending a book about domestic abuse with someone like Steve Bannon. But <laughs> I, you know, but the, what I say at the end there is that, you know, um, if you don't believe it's possible to reduce domestic abuse now, consider that five years ago, few could have imagined something like Me Too that's not just become a revolution against sexual harassment, but against patriarchy itself. And, you know, that even that dishevelled alt-right culture warrior, Steve Bannon, um, who is a, a booster for fascists and white supremacists, acknowledged <laughs> it as the most radical movement of our time. And, and he said this thing to a Bloomberg reporter, um, which I found amazing because as much as I, I despise Steve Bannon and everything he stands for, he does have a pretty keen eye for where the culture is going. And he said to them, you know, time's up on 10,000 years of recorded history this is coming, this is real, and it is real. And, you know, that's why people are kicking back really strong. And it's, it's again, you know, we're, we're, having that, we're having that battle, but it's like more people have come over to a, a place of understanding with Me Too than came over in the 1970s. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, you know, that, that constant, you know, serve and volley of progress, right? Like it's like that there'll be progress and then there's the, you know, then there's the reflective volley against it and then back and forth. And you've seen the pushback already with me too, but I think the momentum is just trudging along and it's, and at the moment, despite the impediments, it seems to be going forward. Well, look, and also I love that we've kind of sort of brought it back to politics because you're right about Steve Bannon. He does have his finger on the pulse, even though he's an absolute lunatic and a pig and he's disgusting. <laughs> um, so so from, from, one, from one portrayal of a disgusting man to uh, someone who is not disgusting, someone who is good, Dustin Hoffman, uh, in this moment, in this, in this performance as Carl Bernstein um, and uh, the incredible Ned Beatty playing uh, Mr. Dardis here. Um, Let's dive back into the minute that we're talking about. So, guys, uh, we will we will dive into just watching the minute right now, and then Jess and I will come back and unpack it for you. 
evening. It's going to have to wait until tomorrow, okay? Well, I just wish you could have told me that before I left because i got to go back to my paper now and write that story one way or another, that's all. You want to see Mr. Barker's phone records and, and his money records? You told me on the telephone I came down and you showed me everything you got on Barker. That's all I want. Well, that's what I've got. Well, that's fine. Okay, you and I are going to have to have an agreement that you're not going to reveal the source of your information. All these are cashier's checks on uh, Is all Mexican a checks? bank in Mexico City. All these checks from Mexico? You see? How come? Does money originate there? Well, I doubt it started off as pesos. Uh, well, wait a minute, what's this one? Uh, what's, okay, $25,000, uh... Was, was that Dahl, Kenneth? Kenneth H. Dahlberg. Uh, we haven't been able to ascertain uh, who that is. Bob, listen, I think I got something. I don't know what it is. But somewhere in this world, there is a Kenneth H. Dahlberg, and we got to get to him before the New York Times does. Because I think they have the same information. You got a pencil? Write this down. There it is. I, I do love one line. Oh, the, uh, I, I love one call and response so much in this 60 seconds of 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Man, Jess, which is all I want is everything. And and Dardis in Ned Beatty's just beautiful sort of casual, well, that's what I've got. Like, you know, it says, all I want is everything. Well, I've got everything. So it's yours. And there's just this sort of glum, a uh, little bit of uh, self-satisfaction from, from Dustin Hoffman's Carl Bernstein sort of smugly smiling that he's kind of got what he needs. Um, but for, for you and I watching, taking it now to this film, you're in, you know, apart from now being an investigative journalist and author, you're a producer on the ABC for, for a radio producer, um, a, a news producer. How much has, and I think it's, uh, it might be good to talk to you as an Aussie journal, like th this movie that lionizes journalists, is this a movie that's seminal for Aussie journalists? Has it, was it a part of your life? Was it something that you sort of consumed, um, um, you know, other than obvious, the obviousness and the sort of... Uh, omnipresence of the word Watergate or, and adding the suffix mm -hmm. gate to everything? Like, is this a movie that you like, you've revisited, you're, you're, you're into? I did, you know, I've watched it a few years ago. Um, but, you know, in terms of, like, I'm not, I'm not with the ABC now, but I was for, for several years and, and worked in the, you know, um, PM World Today and AM team. Um, and, you know... It probably, the thing was that Bob Woodward, by the time I was working in journalism, he'd sort of crossed over to being, I'm sorry, Bob, but a little bit of a White House hack. Um, <laughs> so he sort of, he, he wasn't in his glory days um, anymore. You know, I was, I joined the ABC just after the election of Obama, but Bob Woodward, from memory, he'd written a book sort of from inside the Bush White House and it was pretty fawning. Um, so uh, for me, he sort of, um, he certainly, I, I'm not comparing him in terms of content, but in this, like John Pilger, for me, when I was a baby journalist and sort of um, looking tell, up to other journalists. Tell, tell folks, because I know very familiar with John and his work and especially his documentaries. Tell, can you just explain to international listeners, just give a little bit more context on who John Pilger is, just in case they might not know if it's an international yeah. person. So John Pilger, um, you know, great foreign correspondent, um, did a lot of work in Vietnam, really, and, you know, back then reporting the other side of the story. Very, like, I mean, you know, his, his career has been pretty, um, has been about really busting US imperialism, you know, largely, um, mm. and, and imperialism generally, and, and not about 
reporting from the position of Western power, as I guess, you know, um, quite a few journalists have, uh, even foreign correspondents who've tried to hold the line um, and challenge power. He's, he has been quite unique in his challenging of that. Um, the thing is, I think with John Pilger is that over the years, he became more egotistical, kind of embittered, um, more hubristic. And I think actually his work is still quite good. Um, Utopia, um, I think mm. The War We Don't See, which was about, you know, how the BBC does or doesn't cover um, issues in Palestine. Yes. You know, I actually really enjoyed those and I think they were up to scratch with his earlier work, but but his attitude and um, and, and the way that he's sort of come to represent um, a more conspiratorially minded um, journalist that's that's been a real shame um and and you know especially i mean when the syrian war started we started to see a real like drawing of lines so people like robert fisk the great middle east correspondent who had put you know largely in the same category as john pilger yes started to report in ways that were confusingly pro assad um yeah. and what started to see was sort of like anyone who is the enemy of Israel and America is my friend type of thing. And, and Robert Fisk did some pretty horrific PR reports um, for the Assad government. I was in Lebanon um, when the, when the war was in its early phases and um, Robert Fisk lives in Beirut. And it was, you know, it was a real topic of conversation among Middle East journalists, how far he'd fallen in their estimation. Um, and, and John Pilger also became a booster for Assad. And, you know, I, I'm sorry if I'm verbaling you, John, um, but, but it, it, <laughs> what I, from what I had read, it was sort of, you know, really talking about false flag um, incidents where it couldn't have been possible that Assad would have launched a, chemi a chemical weapons attack on a, uh, um, an outlying suburb of, of Damascus or, it, you know, that it must have been the rebels or it must have been America or it was Russia or, you know, it's sort of, yeah, John Pill just sort of gone across to that Russia Today um, type of perspective. And it's, it's a real shame because I think, you know, I used to look up to him a lot and it's made it very difficult for him to engage with, main, with the mainstream, um, which is probably fine by him. So for, <laughs> for me, you know, for me, people like that and, and Bob Woodward to a lesser extent, but he sort of, it sort of had become like access was more important to him than holding political figures really to account. Yes. Um, and obviously that was a bit different in his account of the Trump White House, but, you know, like the fact was he had so many people willing to talk that access wasn't an issue. Um, and, and his book on the Trump White House was fated um, and it seems rightly so. Um, but I actually, right, right at the end of my time at the ABC, I did a fellowship with the Edward R. Murrow Fellowship um, to the States. Wow. And it, it's a fellowship that's, um, that's given out to people all over the world. Um, so there's, there's representatives, journalistic representatives from all over the world. And we all sort of tour the states and um, we start in Washington, D.C. And we, we have, there's lectures at the State Department. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really incredible opportunity to not only have, you know, have access to, um, to the various arms of the U.S. government, but also to see what it's like 
for journalists in some of the hardest regions to report from. And we were at the US State Department and I was there with um, a bunch of journalists from all over, but from China, but especially from Pakistan and from Afghanistan. And Bob Woodward was giving the guest lecture and people, I mean, like as soon as he came in the room, everyone was just all over him. Everyone wanted a photo. He was being totally mobbed. Um, in fact, it was just impossible to get any, anywhere <laughs> near him. Um, and, and he gave his, he gave his address and he's talking as he was talking and talking about access to power and talking about Watergate. Um, he, he had a message for the reporters in the room who may find it hard to get people in power to answer their questions. And he said to this room full of people from countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan, that um, if you cannot get the people in power to answer your questions, well, then you just march straight up to their door. You go to their homes, march straight up to their door um, in the middle of the night if you have to. You knock on that door and when they answer, you say, I demand to know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking around going, um, Bob, do you know what it's like to report on politicians in Afghanistan and Pakistan? And afterwards, you know, after, after he'd gone and everyone gave him a hearty round of applause, um, the Pakistani journalists were all huddled together. I went over and said, what do you think? And he said, yeah, well, we're just thinking about what would you say to all those men with the AK-47s when you marched up to the front door? At midnight. At midnight. At at, at midnight. In in, in, in the the Pakistani mountains or or, or, or in a huge palatial gated community that has 12 security guards on a 24-hour rotating circle. Yeah, look, it's... I love that. They love being surprised by reporters before the night. And then they do invariably tell you the truth when you get to their front door. Yeah, it's really funny. It's it's really funny that, you know, uh, it's really funny how antithetical that is to the grind that is portrayed in this movie and the grind of their true-to-life story. Like the grind of they had uh, 300, not just people in power, people who just were in the know, who were following orders from people in power and slamming doors in their face continuously. For months. Yeah, well, I mean, it was something else that Bob would have said, said, um, can you imagine anything more terrifying than being asked by a source to go down into the basement of a car park at night? And, you know, there's people. A lot of people room. in that room. That- and I'm like, yeah, I can imagine lots more terrifying things than that. Bob, let me tell <laughs> you. Combat, you know? <laughs> Bob, have you heard of a landmine? Okay. That's, yes. that's- have you heard of the Taliban? <laughs> 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 you know, it just was so funny because I think what, you know, um, what, what it sort of revealed to me was that here's someone who is a legend and will always be a legend in, in journalism. Um, and he did have to totally do all the old school journalism tricks to, to land the biggest investigation that we've practically ever seen um, against all odds. But here's someone who for a long time has been fated and has had incredible privilege and access and can't remember what it was like, you know, and how, and actually how dangerous it was. Um, And that back in those days, access to politicians, A, you didn't have a million media minders around them, let alone the guys with the AK-47s, you know, in the Northwest frontier, but like you didn't have this coterie of people preventing you from, from accessing, you know, you really could go to someone's house and possibly get them to answer the door. 
Um, whereas now, even the most sort of middling politicians, it can be very difficult to get access to them, you know. Um, and, and I mean, I'm, you know, in Australia might be a, a different story, but in, in it's like there's there's a very different world that journalists occupy now than the one that Bob Woodward did back then. Um, even and, and even then, it was difficult. And the ins like and this film as a text and this story, like the how this story broke and the reporting around it, in essence incentivizes and creates this huge industry around politicians as protectors like pr people who just you know media advisors whatever the case may be that are the intermediaries and the buffers that play between journalists such as yourself and them mm. so when you're trying to penetrate it's not just calling it's not just using a really crafty trick and calling them at their holiday home that you've somehow got a number for and getting lucky because that obviously can still happen or like you call a hotel where you know they're staying or you know there are all those tricks that can still happen in the modern um in a contemporary sense but then there is the the pr manager the agent the you know the media manager and, Can and you get them, are they going to talk to you? Are they, are they even going to have a conversation on the record? Like and in Australia, for, for folks in America who are listening, the concept of on or off the record in Oz from what I've heard from my journalistic friends is like, we don't have the same, there's not, you, you might have a source who's willing to go off the record, but if you're talking to a politician and they agree to talk to you and you're from a major news publication in this country, they kind of know that the minute you walk in the door, they're on the record. Like they, there's a presumption of, anything they say will be used against them, so, so to speak. So, unless they say this is all off the record. Unless, unless really clearly, yeah, I will only talk to you if this is off the record. Yeah, so it's, it's just one of those really strange things. But I think it's... Why we always have unnamed sources, you know, peppering all of these political articles and, and you know, trying to dob on their colleagues or, you know, or stir up, you know, stir up unrest in their party it's like very rare that you get someone going actually on the record with their name. And in Australia, it's a different kettle of fish too. You know, it's a different kettle of fish from our libel laws and things like that. You know, um, um, there's a whole, there's a whole other thing in a recent episode that folks will be listening to now. I was speaking to one of my, you know, a film critical mind colleague of mine and friend, uh, Niall Schwartz. And he was asking about, you know, why, why, why someone like myself, a film critic in Australia would be wanting to talk to, talk about this story about like, does it have a universal appeal being such a quintessentially American story? And I said, yeah, because of the omnipresence of the thing. And in Australia, particularly, we've got journalists such as yourself who like have to tirelessly work to get breaks into, you know, government organizations to have the information revealed so that you can break big stories and then ultimately mm. turn them into what you've done. Um, there is a participation well, mention, that. Yeah. I mean, and not to mention the fact that, you know, um, whistleblowers are, receiving some of the harshest punishments you know have yes. richard Boyle, who was the whistleblower um at the taxation office and you know he was facing like a hundred and something years in prison <laughs> yes for, for blowing the whistle on a practice that was absolutely unethical you know um and that is the, there is absolutely no question that it was in the public interest but you know and and the the extent to which we have changed laws to allow metadata to be tracked. And so, you know, the fact that even though they won't necessarily track a journalist's phone, by by looking at the phone records of anyone that they suspect within a workplace or a, or a public department, that they can they can pretty much draw, you know, whether those people have been in touch with 
with journalists and such to the point where they can even, I mean, there was a guy who used a public telephone that was reasonably nearby his, his house um, or his workplace, sorry, and called a reporter about a particular story. He was a government employee and he ended up being found out, you know, so it's like, it's very difficult now to release information unless you do it in a very old school way, literally either just absolutely in person, um, sending handwritten letters, things that have never touched software. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just, the one of the most recent episodes that just dropped, I spoke to the senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan from the ABC. And he said, literally after the Australian federal police raids on the ABC at the end of last year, you know, um, and early this year, you know, talking to different sources has meant occasionally if you want to blow the whistle, hand, don't even photocopy it, don't print it at work, maybe hand write what you want to blow the whistle on and then mail it to a location that I can, you know, pick it up. You know, there's those sorts yeah, of things where you just How do you like, even make that contact first? Yeah. You know, do you just, because how do you get inside the ABC? You used to be able to get in um, and just walk in the front door and anyone had access to a, to a reasonable you know, extent, you could then go to the front desk and ask to speak to a reporter or, you know, yes. like you can't even get by the door now. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's like you have to have, um, you have to be allowed in, you have to have a reason to be there. So it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and obviously there are encrypted apps like Signal and a bunch of others that, that you can use to contact um, reporters and that are probably reasonably safe. Um, and that is certainly, I know what some reporters use. I even had people who are involved in family court disputes who have had gag orders in their final parenting um, orders who have wanted to contact me via signal um, so that so that nothing can be traced or, um, or brought against them in court. Yes. So obviously, you know, there are ways to do it, but it's just increasingly difficult and it is a massive deterrent. And just like in this moment that we're watching, this minute that we're talking about, there's, a, for whatever reason, a, a, a Florida-based uh, political entity is trying to use Watergate as a mechanism to be re-elected and they stumble onto a bunch of misappropriated funds that are coming internationally looking like being laundered through there and uh in this case it's just you know they're, they're literally dealing with a paper trail a physical pieces of paper photocopies of checks in a safe uh and at that time they you know it's that that analog is very lovely and and, and the government is not at this time in 1970 73 74 not tapping payphone like perhaps they are now and uh and uh sending that off to doing that back off yeah not being able to trace it in the same way or not even it not being legal to do that um necessarily and i guess the, the number of powers that are home affairs officers um or homeland security officers have have accrued in the you know in the in the decades since has um has allowed for you know much greater surveillance of reporters and their sources so yeah i mean it's obviously we it's it's not that an investigation the scale of watergate couldn't happen now um but it is much more difficult to access all of that information um but yeah maybe maybe in the states there's still a, a bit more freedom i remember the new york times um the the head of the new york times bureau in australia said that aside from 
you know, developing countries, he's reported from Australia, is the most um, private and the most sort of locked off um, first world country he's ever reported from. And it is true. We're very, it's so difficult to get access here. Um, it's just, everything is so private. People won't give you the information and even about stuff that seems just so innocuous. Um, but it's, you know, everything feels very locked down. How did you overcome that knowing the sensitivity of what you were dealing with? Because, you know, obviously there was, you know, Royal Commission and discussions and, and then you're partnering with these government agencies, but like, was, was your reporting that was happening at the time, did that help to, was that in collaboration? Was that in support? Was that in, how did that work? Cause I think that that's one major thing here, like in a sort of funny way in what ends up being sort of a, a more humorous scene about personality and style when it comes to Dustin Hoffman's reporting as Carl Bernstein, you know, style, like manipulating this guy, pushing him saying he's going to print the story one way or the other. And, and, Whereas in some of the reporting you're doing, because of the sensitivity yeah. of it, you're having to like, if you, if you don't have that partnership, if you don't establish that relationship, then it's impossible to tell the stories effectively and, and as essentially as what you've done. Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, it was like, it wasn't so much about getting information out of gatekeepers. Um, it was more about getting people to talk frankly. Um, so everyone from family court judges to, you know, expert witnesses who were writing psychiatric assessments of families. Um, And one particular um, expert witness who had written thousands of assessments um, for the family court, sort of advising on whether domestic abuse was an issue or child abuse was an issue and and advising the judge on on how they should allocate custody. You know, I, I had heard from a number of parents that this one particular psychiatrist had had minimised and dismissed reports of abuse um, in their own um, family assessments and had made recommendations to the judge that ended up putting their children in dangerous situations. Um, and I just thought, look, I'll, I'll see if this person wants to talk to me. Um, and I didn't do so disingenuously. I didn't approach... I didn't approach him disingenuously. I, I said quite honestly that I really wanted to ask him questions about how he how he does his assessments and how he comes to his conclusions about these families that are often in high conflict. And um and what I did was when I got in front of him, I I I guess was trying to pander to his ego um, by being impressed by what he was telling me and, and encouraging him to share more and more. Um, so it made him loosen up and and think that this this is a friendly audience. This is someone who is who is legitimately interested in in how I come to these conclusions. So I'll I'll give them sort of a backstage view. And so the sorts of things he was telling me was that he would, um, in some cases where there was abuse allegations, he would bring the child who had made the abuse allegation into the room with the parent they'd made the abuse allegation against, oh, and ask the child in front of that parent about the abuse just to see what happens (laughs) and and that he would then judge whether there was awkwardness or whether there was a a tension between the two as to to judge whether the abuse had or had not occurred um which is actually a it's a horrific thing to do um from from the perspective of child protection um but but b it's not even an effective 
way to measure whether abuse has happened because children who've experienced sexual or physical abuse can actually idealise that parent um, for some time. And there can be all sorts of different relationships that, that go on um, between children and parents and different sorts of behaviours. So there's absolutely no test that you can put on, on that sort of situation. So there was things like that I was able him to, to get him to be really open about. Um, that was the sort of reporting, you know, and, and getting like the, the um, one of the senior judges from the family court to talk about whether they have minimum standards for the people who are making these expert assessments. Do they actually need to have any expertise in child abuse or family violence? And getting that judge to sort of, to, to, get into almost a state of conflict with me um, as though what I was asking was just absurd. You know, just getting in front of them and getting them to go on the record and getting them into that moment where they have to say either way um, or reveal what they actually think about these things, that was the hardest thing. Um, and that required sort of just a bit of creative thinking. Um, but I've never been in favour of approaching a source no matter how... Um, no matter what that source has allegedly done or what you're trying to find out, um, disingenuously, like by saying, I only want to know this when actually you want to know something completely different and then you totally um, confront them in the moment um, and and do the interview totally differently to how you promised you would. I don't, yes. I don't like that. Um, and I know that there are, there are some journalists that have been accused of that in recent years in Australia. Um, I don't think that's fair. And I'm always of the um, opinion that you put the best and the worst of what you hear from these people, no matter what your opinion is, because you've got to make it fair. Yes. Um, so. Especially if they're yeah, being, especially if they're being. Government documents, it was, you know, sometimes. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say, Jess, especially if they're being open. So, you know, with you, like you've, you, you had the, Obviously, you, 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 it's, it's getting the documents and it's part of it, but for, for having that cooperation, for them to actually be candid and you hear things that maybe dispel some of your preconceived notions or things that, you know, shake you to your very core and sort of realize your worst fears, it's just being able to present that in an even-handed way and factually about, you know, everything, what's and all, this is what it is. That's precisely, yeah, that's right. And giving people the doing people the um giving people the respect you know um to say that you are you know we were we are all at, at various points the best and worst parts of ourselves so i'm going to show people the best and worst parts of what you've shown me um and um and so and i, I feel like at that stage you know then people can make up their own minds and that's not to say that i don't sort of that i don't give people an indication of what of my assessment of that person and their behavior because you know i think it is important to to give listeners, readers, um, an idea of where you fall, having done the research on, on how this person has behaved. But, but I, it's just, you know, objectivity is one of those words that's been, um, that's become really conflicted in journalistic circles as to whether it means totally impartial and therefore, you know, both just a both sides kind of argument. Um, or whether it means, you know, actually presenting an equal and fair um, report. What I think, you know, after really wrestling with the notion of objectivity and what that means for reporting in various spaces, especially domestic violence, um, has been that in the end, what you need to be is fair. Because in a lot of these situations, 
you know, child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, etc., being impartial is impossible. Um, you know, in a lot of these situations, you are kind of advocating um, for the victims that you're that you're interviewing, um, but you must always be fair to anybody who you're trying to hold to account. That's that's sort of where I've fallen on it. Jess, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you, and thank you for taking. Uh, a digression from purely talking about your text to actually talking about the state of journalism in comparison and that Woodward story is an all-timer so I appreciate it very much coming down <laughs> on the show um, thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it and you know uh, and uh, and I just hope that more and more folk um, continue uh, to sort of consume your book and get, it gets that uh, wider recognition that it fully deserves but I just want to say I'm, I'm really appreciative of your time again and, and for everyone out there see what you made me do um, available everywhere best way to grab it I've grabbed it on Kindle myself um, but you can buy it in bookstores hardcover paperback wherever um, in any way shape or form uh, it's a it's a it's a tough read um, for for the right reasons um, because it's a it's 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 so forthright but I appreciate your time very much thanks so much Blake that was my incredible guest Jess Hill wow just uh, an incredible journalist an incredible voice and uh, an impassioned one and and now listening to that back in the wake of our discussion uh, now a couple of weeks ago um, so incredibly timely that the journalism that we're seeing on display in this movie is not the journalism that international journalists and now local journalists in the United States and journalists all over the world are experiencing in the face of authoritarian activities and violence from police really incredibly timely thank you so much for listening to all the president's minutes we're going to be back four episodes a week uh for the show for the foreseeable future miami nice is taking a short hiatus uh but uh increment advice if you're listening to this today we'll be back next week oneheatminute.com at increment vice and at atpm pod on twitter is where you can find us i'm blake howard at one blake minute if you want to reach out Thank you so much again for listening. Catch you in another episode soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.